we are going to wrap up this series that we all have so much been enjoying. Uh, we've been in this series, God, I have a question now for, uh, this is week six, uh, and I'm not sure if I can handle any more, honestly. I mean, I think it's cool we're asking all these questions and answering all these questions that people inside and outside the church have, uh, but for those of you who don't preach this weekend and week out and feel the level of like angst through the week, uh, you just don't realize how some of the, the tough questions that we've addressed uh, really has take kind of, to me, has been exhausting, if I'm really honest. Um, we, we've been talking about things like hypocrisy and suffering and oppression of women and politics and exclusivity of Christianity, and that's, that's quite a list, right? That's, that's just a lot of things uh, to talk about. Uh, and today, we're not going to get any easier. Today's question is, God, what do you think about sex? So, you know, about annually, I have to stand up here in a very uncomfortable way and talk to a bunch of grown people about sex. Uh, and I said last time, I'm at least as uncomfortable talking about this as you are listening to me talk to you about this. Um, but before we get started, I do want to give you a moment and an opportunity uh, to opt out. I want, I mean, not, not say, hey, I, I don't want to hear about this. Um, but if, if this is something, I mean, it's a sensitive subject. If it's something you really are kind of like, you know what, I want to have the option and, and kind of, I want to bounce. I'm not really sure I want to listen to this. Um, here's your time. And no, no shame, no guilt. But I do want, you know, it's a, you know, for some it's a very uncomfortable topic. And so I did want to give you the opportunity to just opt out. Um, so I'm hopeful that, that as we get into this conversation, you know, I don't know about you, but I think we in the church, we don't engage in enough constructive conversation around this. Would you agree? Like, I think so much of what we find when it comes to the church and sexuality is so just, it's, it's one of two extremes, right? It's like very angry and finger pointing, or it's like, ah, whatever you think is fine. And there's not a lot of constructive conversation around it, I find. But I'm hopeful that as we talk about this today, you're going to find it helpful, informative, and hopefully, my, my belief is that as we get to the end of this, healing. Like, my expectation is that God intends to, to do some healing. And so, as we talk about this, I wanted to begin by asking you, if you were someone who wanted to understand, like, if you were standing in culture and you wanted to go, how do I make sense of sex? Where would I go for more information? Where would you go? Where would you look for for more information? You can shout it out. The library. The internet. Friends. Parents. Grandparents. I mean, maybe. Grandma. I was kind of curious. I know, isn't that uncomfortable? Yeah, all right. Right? Some people would say Google, right? Like, well, I'll just Google it. I'll just Google, and that's where I will understand. I'll seek to really understand deeply this, this idea. Some, uh, as, I was, as I was looking through, some people would say Cosmo. Cosmo is where you go to, to understand. Uh, some people suggest pornography. Others would ask friends, therapists, doctors, counselors. Virtually nobody in our culture says, 
You know where you go for answers? Church. This is where you go for answers on sex. It's church. That's really where you should talk about this. In fact, I mean, honestly, so not this church necessarily, but like we're part of this global thing called the Church of Jesus Christ. I would say at least in America, we've sort of had a pretty pathetic track record when it comes to demonstrating what it looks like, haven't we? I mean, I won't say too much more than that, but don't, I mean, we've, we've done a pretty bad job of demonstrating what healthy sexuality looks like. You know, in general, the sense that people have of the church's perspective is we're sort of, you know, patriarchal, like anti-gay, we're very uh, repressed sexually. And so, uh, you know, why would we ask these kind of people for what this should look like? And yet, it seems to me, and maybe to you, nobody in our culture actually has good answers. Have you ever heard good answers? Everybody just is sort of like, here's kind of what works for me. Here's kind of my thought on it. Nobody has like solid answers. I think part of the reason people discount the church for answers is because we've been quick to give people rules, but we haven't exactly explained the bigger picture of what, what's behind the rules. It's not that the church doesn't have good answers. It's just, in my opinion, we haven't communicated them well. We just haven't talked about it well. And so as we begin to look at what God thinks about sex, I want to take a look at a passage, 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, you can turn 1 Corinthians 6. And we're going to look at this passage. And here's what we read. Beginning in verse 12, it says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. As we consider this passage of Scripture, one thing we need to understand is that it comes from a letter written by a guy named Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And this, was, this specific city was a very sort of sexually extravagant city. It's sort of like anything goes, do whatever you want, do whoever you want, whatever you want to do. Right? And this is sort of the idea behind Corinth, but it really stems from the temple worship of this goddess Artemis. And so, I don't know how much you know about you know, ancient temple worship. I'm going to give you a little bit of an education. But the way that you would connect with this goddess is this temple was full of prostitutes. And so you would go to the temple, you would pay the fee, you would sleep with the prostitute, and this was a way for you to connect with this god, or goddess in this case. And the justification is, is what we see in verses 12 and 13. It says, I have the right to do anything, you say. Paul's quoting these people. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And what they're saying is sex is like hunger. Right? Sex is like hunger. It's an appetite. You know, you got a, you got, you got this need, and you just got like you got this itch, you just gotta scratch it. It really doesn't matter what you do with your body anyway. You know, whatever consenting adults do, it really doesn't make any difference. It's not hurting anybody. And I'm sure you've heard this before, right? It's kind of the mantra of our day, right? Is it really doesn't matter what I do with my body, right? There's this sort of Gnostic understanding of Christianity which says, whatever happens to the body is not that big of a deal. It's really what happens to my soul, that my soul will go to heaven, my soul will be saved. What happens to my body really is irrelevant. It doesn't matter all that much. It's a common statement that people in our time make to say, sort of to say, the Bible was written so long ago. It was written so long ago, and you know, we're more sexually advanced, as if to say the Bible, what the Bible says about sex doesn't really matter at all. And in response, here's what Paul says. Paul says in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And you're sort of like probably going, I I mean, we're not really talking about prostitution. We're just talking about, you know, casual sex and like culture, right? But here's what Paul's talking about. What the people would have said is, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Who's talking about uniting? I'm not talking about uniting. It's just sex. We're not talking about uniting. It's really no big deal. And Paul says, the problem here is, you don't know. You don't know what this is for. You don't know how this works. So what is it they don't know? What is it that we in 2020 America don't know? It's this, that sex is designed for a specific purpose. Paul says that when people have sex, what happens is they are united or joined together. There's a, this is a, a reference in Genesis. You guys, if you're familiar with Genesis, it says the two will become one flesh. So he's sort of referring to this like creation principle. And where he says the two are united, he's not just talking about penetration. He's not just talking about two pieces of flesh being mashed together. The word that he uses here in the original Greek is to fasten together, like with super glue, that the two will be glued together, that it's not just a physical thing. What Paul's saying is that when people have sex, far from being putting together body parts for an enjoyable experience, something deeper and more significant is happening. It's the merging of two whole people with one another to form one person. And this takes place not just at the physical level. When two people have sex, what is actually happening is they're merging themselves at all levels. Spiritual, emotional, physical. One of the things that I frequently find whenever I have conversations with people who want to get married um, is, especially if they have like a sort of a sexual history, like, hey, I've got this, you know, this list of people that I've been with. And one of the things that I find is that that tends to block intimacy between the couple that wants to get married. That there's sort of this thing that happens and we have to walk through a process of allowing God to break the bonds that were created. That there's actual bonds. They're bonded together, super glued together. 
And so when you spread yourself around like that, what ends up happening is, is your ability to be intimate with the person you get married to is blocked. Almost always this happens. Almost always. I can't, in fact, can't think of a, a time that it hasn't. That we have to go back and we have to say, Jesus, we need you to forgive this. We need you to break this bond that we created. This is God's intention for sex. That two people really do become united as one at all levels. Deep bond is formed. Because this is the ultimate merging of two people, this was only designed to be for one person. It was only intended for one person. And it's really, honestly, it's the pinnacle. Like, it's the pinnacle of a relationship with one person. Contrary to current culture, sex is not where you start a relationship, right? Like, isn't this the way culture tells you? It's like, well, you got to make sure you're sexually compatible, right? we got to try it out first. As if somehow this solves the problem. Like, we've practiced enough. I got my practice. You got your practice. Look how great we are at this. This is the way culture tells us to do it, right? That we're supposed to get good at it first. But because this is the deep merging of two people, it's the final step. That sex is not about what you give. Sex is about what you give. And that's all of yourself to someone else. That's what this is about. And so the whole idea of a marriage covenant, of, of, of coming together and standing before your family and your friends and God himself and saying, I pledge my entire life to you. This is the thing that we do before we act out the reality. The only safe place for this is in the context of a committed marriage where the, you know that person's not going anywhere. We don't withhold any of ourselves. The idea that we would get naked before each other and have an experience before we're committed forever to one another is just backwards of the way it was designed. And we wonder why it's so broken in our society. In addition to the merging of two people, God created sex to have within it the potential to continue to create life. So God created Adam and Eve, right? And we have this, this creation story. And what does God say? Well, inherent in, in creation, I'm going to give you the ability to continue to create. That at the pinnacle of relationship, this intimate love that you have for one another, this intimate giving of oneself has the ability to continue creation. This is supposed to happen. Isn't that powerful? I mean, think about it for a minute. Like, think about what we think of in our culture of sex. And it's like, well, you just get what you get, right? You just go get yours. And the biblical perspective on sex is, I'm giving all of myself in participating in this kingdom venture of continuing creation, of continuing recreation, new creation, now that we're, we're followers of Jesus. Do you see how different this is? Do you see how, like... Just, just completely opposite. And here's the thing. The fact that we are able to participate with God in creation is a signpost to the reality that God exists. Sex done right is supposed to point to God. I mean, think about that the next time you're in your bedroom. Just bring Jesus in there. Just make everything horribly uncomfortable. Everybody's like, I'm not sure if I can laugh at that. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to laugh at that. This is church after all. 
But what I hope you see is that there's this extreme power, right? Like I've said this a number of times. There's a lot of things that I've seen in God that I'm like, he's crazy because he gives us entirely too much power as human beings. There's entirely too much power. The fact that you can speak to a demon and it leaves in the name of Jesus, that's, it. that's just crazy. Like, God, you should just be the one to have that power. The fact that he hands us the ability to continue creation, it's just crazy. And it's prone to be misused, isn't it? Isn't it prone to be misused? Like some of you may argue this, but I would ask you this question. And for some of you, this might trigger you, and I apologize in advance. But if this is just about just pleasure and, and two people like, you know, bodies hitting each other, if it's just a natural appetite, if it's really no big deal, then why does rape and molestation leave such a mark? Why do people who are raped get are messed up for a really long time? Why is it that children that get molested are messed up for a really long time? If it's just, if it's just natural and, you know, it's just, that, why is that? If it's natural, if it's just no big deal, if it's just a natural appetite, why do so many people who are addicted to pornography struggle to find intimacy in marriage? If it's just, we're just getting, our, just getting ours. Why is that always true? Or, or if it's just a natural appetite, it's really no big deal, why do so many people who have connection to multiple sexual partners struggle to be intimate with the person they choose to marry? Why is that true? I mean, regardless of whether or not you believe Scripture, regardless of whether or not you buy what I'm saying about this being God's design for sex, I think every one of you knows this is true. These things are true because sex is a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. And I think deep down we all know that if there are wrong and damaging ways to do this, there must be a right way. There must be a right way. And so the follow-up question to that is, where will you turn for direction? Who's going to tell you the right way to use this powerful thing? Cosmo? The internet? Who's going to tell you how to use this thing? It would probably be helpful to know what it was designed for so we could use it well. Here's the thing. God's design for sexuality is such a high bar. Most people would go, well, you know, this is just not the, I don't like the Christian sexual ethic. It's just so, so restrictive. It's so tight-fisted. It's so, you know, God says the only appropriate place for sexual expression is a committed monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. It's the only place for it. And this makes everybody upset, right? Everybody gets mad about this. Single people go, you mean I can't have sex with anybody until I'm married? Gay people say, you mean I can't have sex with anybody? Married people are saying, you mean this is the only person I can have sex with for the rest of my life? Nobody's really happy with the biblical ethic, but the reality is we pursue it because we believe there's life in it. That there's something about the way it was designed that if we use it appropriately... Life works, right? 
Everything else falls short of God's design. And certainly, all sorts of emotions surface when I say this, right? Like, I think there may be, for some of us, there's frustration, there's anger. For some of us, there's shame and guilt. There's almost certainly other questions. Like, what do we do with single people then? What does Christianity do for for people who are homosexual? Doesn't everybody deserve to have sex? What about the person that's trying to obey this and fulfill this and yet has a hard time? What do we do with people like that? What do we do with all of us who are trying to figure this out? I want us to consider for just a minute. I want you to think about Jesus for just a minute. Jesus came to earth. Those of us who follow Jesus would say, wow, this is the guy that I emulate. This is the life that I want to live. That Jesus lived the most fulfilled, if you want to use the term, self-actualized life ever. And yet Jesus himself never had sex. Could it be, could it be that our culture has elevated sex in such a way that it was never intended to be? Could it be that the perspective we have of sex is twisted? Is it possible? C.S. Lewis said this, poster after poster, film after film, novel after novel, associate the idea of sexual indulgence with the ideas of health, normality, youth, frankness, and good humor. Now, this association is a lie. Like all powerful lies, it's based on the truth. The truth acknowledged above that sex itself, apart from the excesses and obsessions that have grown around it, is normal and healthy and all the rest of it. The lie consists in the suggestion that any sexual act to which you are tempted at the moment is also healthy and normal. Now this, on any conceivable view, and quite apart from Christianity, must be nonsense. Surrender to all our desires obviously leads to impotence, disease, jealousies, lies, concealment, and everything that is the reverse of health, good humor, and frankness. The lie we live in our culture is that everybody should have sex. That we've sort of like, we've put it right alongside water and food and shelter. We, like the Corinthians, have just said, well, you know, it's just an appetite. It's just a thing that everybody should do. But this is not how it was created. And for the person who's encountered Jesus and surrendered his or her life to Jesus, Paul reminds us of this in verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If you're a follower of Jesus, what that means is you don't call the shots any longer. When you said, I surrender to Jesus, what you were saying is, I'm not in charge, you are. I give. I surrender. Every decision from here on out is yours. And through the leading of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do whatever it is that you say. This is what it is to keep in step with the Spirit. We don't make those decisions any longer. That's what it is to follow Jesus. What this means is that the way you use your body is not up to you. It's no longer up to you when you surrender to Jesus. And some of you are like, well, then I'm never going to do that. But can I say that there's life in following Jesus? 
there's true life in following Jesus. My former pastor in Columbus, Rich Nathan, would say, if God doesn't have your body, he doesn't have you. We can say all we want about being surrendered to Jesus, but what you do with your bodily existence matters. It matters. If you would say you've surrendered your life to Jesus, but he doesn't call the shots on what you do with your body, you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus. Will you surrender your body to Jesus? Now, here's the deal. Before we close, I want to talk about sort of the elephant in the room. I want to talk about how we who follow Jesus are to approach people who fall short of the biblical ethic for sexuality. Can we talk about that for a minute? Make everybody really, really uncomfortable again? It's just exercises, right? Uncomfortable? It's, un- it's like, oh, I'm comfortable. It's just a release. I want to talk about this because I think what we've done in the church historically is we've pointed fingers and we've said, you are bad. You are wrong. And we point a whole lot of fingers. And I don't think that's what we're called to do. I think any approach of sexual brokenness begins by acknowledging that many, if not all of us in this room, at one time or another, have fallen short of the biblical ethic. We start there. I mean, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's sex before marriage, maybe it's sex outside of marriage, maybe it's homosexual sex, whatever it is that we found ourselves in, we are people who need God's grace. That's how we start that we are people desperately in need of God's grace. And this is how we start dealing with sexual brokenness. We start with our own stuff. We start right there. And as we give to Jesus our brokenness, we receive overwhelming grace and forgiveness. And what Jesus does is he changes our identity. He says, you're not a sexual sinner. You're a child of God. If you locate your identity there, we can move forward. I have called you a child of God. That is what you are. I will take your false identity and I will give you a real identity. Then as we encounter people who are stuck themselves in sexual brokenness, We reach into the storehouse of grace and forgiveness that's been so lavishly poured on us. And we give them a cup. And we say, you get forgiveness. You get grace. Because I have experienced grace. This is how we approach people. Out of the grace that we have received. We don't hand people a book and say, just read this and you'll get yourself right. I had a conversation earlier this week, and this person said to me that there was, she's uh, related to somebody who's gay, and they came to this church, and they're trying to follow Jesus. And they show up to this church, and there's sort of this passive-aggressive, like, you know you're wrong, right? And I always wonder, why doesn't anybody say that about gossip? Why doesn't anybody hand the prideful person in church a book and say, go read this and you'll get yourself figured out? 
why don't we ever point fingers about that kind of thing? There's something about somebody who would pursue Jesus that we ought never throw, never throw a roadblock in the way. It breaks my heart for people who sincerely want to know Jesus to say, well, if you'll just get this thing figured out, then you can come here and it's bullcrap. Nowhere else in society is going to say that. Nobody else is going to tell you how to deal and use sexuality, right? Nobody else is going to tell you the right way to handle it. Shouldn't we be people who have grace on top of grace on top of grace for people who are trying to sort it out? I think so often we in the church get this wrong. But could we be people who change the course? Could we be people who have grace on top of grace on top of grace for people who are stuck in brokenness? I think we humanize people when we agree with them in their brokenness and offer them grace. Everybody wants to fall off one side or the other, tell you how bad and wrong you are, or just pretend like there is no standard. But I think we humanize people when we say, no, this is not right. This is not what God has called us to, and yet God has grace for you. Can we be those kind of people? I want to be those kind of people.